This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Save the date for the grand reopening on May 14th and 15th after the most extensive and transformative renovation in its nearly 200-year history. It's your history museum, your story. Details at virginiahistory.org. Hello and welcome to season six of the How We Got Here podcast. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa, an investigative journalist with WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. And I work on the national team for gray television called Investigate TV. I'm a mom of twins. There's seven, pray for me. And in my spare time, I somehow find time to do this podcast. My cohorts on this project are executive producer Colton Weekly and digital director Kate Albright. So I'm going to be frank with you guys. The pandemic really made things a little more difficult for us this season. We tried our best to make this season happen through the trials and tribulations of the Omicron variant. But we love this podcast. It's so rewarding. So I tried beyond all measures to make it happen for you guys. All right, enough about us. Let's get going with episode one. We are turning back the clock on the week of March 7th through the 13th. In a boxing match, everyone is inching closer and closer to their TVs, holding their breath to see a knockout. One heavyweight shocking another. Even if it's a swift one-two punch in the first round, it's what you paid top dollar to see. But when that fight goes 12 rounds with no clear winner and judges have to decide, you feel a little cheated. And that's exactly what happened to crowds of people 160 years ago in Hampton Roads, Virginia. It happened in my backyard. I live in Newport News. (laughs) This is where it all happened, in front of thousands of spectators. On March 9th, 1862, the epic battle between the heavyweights known as Ironclads, the USS Monitor, and the CSS Virginia, formerly known as the Merrimack. The Merrimack is named after a river in New England. It's it's just, they gave it the name of the river that was very, very common. They renamed it the Virginia because they wanted it to represent the state and they saw no reason for, as they put it, a a Yankee River to be part of the name. As you might have guessed, they is the Confederates and we are in the midst of the Civil War for this story. And that knowledgeable voice should sound very familiar to you if you joined us in season five for the raucous adventure of John Paul Jones. That's when we had the great fortune of meeting our guest, for the very first time. My name is Ed Moore. I am with the Mariners Museum and Newport News Speakers Bureau. And I speak about history to many different groups, including the military, Navy, Army, and Air Force. Graduate of Auburn University, originally from Florida. I have a certificate in military strategy and policy from Old Dominion University, which is why I usually speak about naval warfare. Did you enjoy the first ten? Yes, very much so. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. What do you think of the podcast? 
Well, it's just great. It's informative, fun. The history is just is wonderful. And I, I don't know that there's a better state to do a podcast like this because so much happened in Virginia. I mean, you couldn't do this project in Idaho. You know, you'd run out of ideas in six weeks. <laughs> but we have, we have a lot of rich history and the podcast is doing a fabulous job of doing the research, finding out what's important and getting it on the air for the listeners. Let's give you some background before we get to March 1862. On the easternmost side of Virginia is Hampton Roads, the gateway to the Chesapeake Bay, an entryway right from the Atlantic Ocean. The Norfolk Hampton Roads area is indefensible. It changed hands many times during the American Revolution, during the War of 1812, during the Civil War, because you can't defend it. Because you're at sea level, ships just have to come into the harbor and just open fire. At the beginning of the war, the Union evacuates. The Confederacy takes over the Portsmouth Naval Yard, which had been built by the British in 1767, one of only two granite dry docks in the entire colonies. And there, in the Naval Yard, was the USS Merrimack, a 40-gun frigate launched in 1855. The Merrimack served in the Caribbean and was the flagship of the Pacific Fleet. The United States decommissioned the ship for expensive repairs in Norfolk, and it was still there when the Civil War began in April of 1861. Union sailors knew they couldn't leave it just sitting there as they evacuated. And they take the Merrimack and they try to destroy it by burning it and scuttling it so it sinks in in the harbor. And even though it seems like a good plan to keep it out of Confederate hands, the U.S. Navy did not have a bounty of ships to choose from. At the beginning of the war, it only had 42 ships, and of those, 30 were overseas protecting American merchant interests. Of the 12 left, four were docked, leaving them with eight, and they just sank one in Portsmouth. Left with just seven ships, the U.S. Navy had its own share of problems, and soon it would learn of a new one. The Merrimack was coming back from the depths. The Confederacy brings it back up and decides to turn it into an ironclad. Brings it up, its steam engines still work, not very well. Uh, this ship had sailed around the world, had been in the Pacific, had actually navigated the world as part of its service, and they turned it into the first ironclad. This is essentially the death of the old wooden ships, a moment of ingenuity changing naval warfare forever. They take the upper part and they put two feet of oak, and then on top of the two feet of oak, they put 24 inches of iron. The iron came from Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond, almost exclusively. And they put 10 guns, including a forward and aft gun, and then four on each side. And they spent months figuring out how to do this. Engineers even went as far as Williamsburg with some cannons, taking the oak with them, figuring out the best angle to install the planks so enemy cannonballs would simply bounce off, falling harmlessly into the sea. So they came up with 36 degrees. And then part of that also is they figured out if the walls of the ironclad are slippery, they're more likely to lose the cannonballs. So they went from house to house, Norfolk and Portsmouth, asking for people's bacon grease and pork fat grease, and they covered the hull in pork fat and bacon grease. 
which is going to bring you to an interesting story on March 9th. More on that later. And trust me, it is worth it. While the Confederacy is building this massive ship, the North was not to be outdone. Since both sides speak English, and since the mail service never stopped during the Civil War, they delivered mail on both sides of the conflict all during the war, spying was easy. So the North knows this ironclad is being built, and, and they, they even get a copy of the, of the plans. A, a slave actually takes them up to and hands them over to the Washington War Department. Here's what the blueprints look like. So the North hurried to build its own ship with the help of inventor John Erickson. John Erickson, who had invented the Monitor, had tried to sell the Monitor to, he was from Sweden, to multiple European countries who refused it because they didn't think it would work. And the United States did the same thing. And President Lincoln was actually in on the meetings. Now that they have the plans of the Merrimack, Virginia, they say, okay, we need the Monitor and we need it quick. Mr. Erickson, you have 100 days to build it. So Brooklyn, New York, they built it in 100 days and made their deadline. Picture it, two clashing sides in a civil war, racing to build the first ships blanketed in a coat of iron, one side with a bit of a head start. Now let's set the scene for March 9th, 1862. I asked Ed Moore, what do we need to know going into that day? Yeah, we're gonna have to go back to March 8th. So the Virginia comes out on March 8th, 1862. It's finally done after nine months of construction. There are all kinds of delays because Tredegar Ironworks could not produce the iron fast enough. They were pulling up railroad lines and actually melting those down. They were going from house to house saying, you have any iron we can have? Doesn't matter what it, whether it's a tea kettle, whether it's a brass doorknob, we need iron. They also needed pig iron to put on the deck of the ship to get the ship low in the water because the ironclad was only iron above the waterline. Below the waterline, it was still a wooden frigate from the 1850s. Think about 18,000 pounds of iron sitting on the deck to keep it down low. The Monitor was not nearly the size of the Virginia, but relied on its design rather than brute strength. The Monitor is actually a very, very small ship. That's one reason why it was called cheese box on a raft. 12 feet of draft, which meant it could get, get over shoals easier. The turret is, is only 20 feet in diameter, nine feet off the ground. It's only 10 and a half feet above the water line is basically your roof line and it was about 160 feet long it was about uh, 60 feet wide the virginia was 267 feet long of that 267 feet about 160 feet were the actual iron and then part of the hull of the ship where they would stack the pig iron looked like any other warship at the time period so it kind of looked like a, a house sitting on top of a boat as you can imagine unbearably hot in both of them the Monitor had two steam engines that propelled the ship. One rotated the turret. It's called a donkey engine, and the donkey engine is that secondary engine that does this work. At full speed, this thing can rotate in 30 seconds, but you can't fight a battle rotating that quickly. It's just too fast, not to mention that how dizzy the sailors inside of it would get. Finding people to actually get on these ships was really the biggest problem. Since they're made of iron above the water, everyone thought they would just instantly sink. It was never fully manned because of a lack of people to, to man it. The old line naval people said, I'm not getting on that thing. <laughs> that's, that's not, that's not uh, fair. <laughs> I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> and 
here comes this monster. And that was exactly how the sailors felt about it. As the Virginia and the Monitor were being built, nobody wanted to go on them. Because at this time in history, a sea battle between sailing ships was a combination of skill, luck, art, science, bravery. Monitor was commanded by John Morden, and he, he managed to get 60 volunteers, none of which had any experience, none of which had ever fought in a battle before. The Virginia had to actually gather artillerymen from the infantry to actually be the sailors on the ship and, and teach them as quickly as possible how to, how to sail a warship. The Monitor has about 60 sailors on it total. Virginia has about 260. And all of what Ed and I are about to describe took place in the James River. If you are in Newport News, the Monitor Merrimack Memorial Bridge Tunnel, which everybody here calls the 3M, that's the battlefield. And, and as you cross the, the Cumberland, it's is just off the bridge. Fort Monroe at this time is controlled by Hampton, uh, in Hampton is controlled by the North. And Sewell's Point, Willoughby Spit, those areas over in, in Norfolk are controlled by the South. This area is where the battle raged, but all of it on the Hampton-Newport News side, not on the Norfolk-Portsmouth side. Why are they even in Virginia? Why is this going on here as opposed to some other place, Charleston, Boston? Hampton Roads Harbor is the largest and deepest natural harbor in the entire world. The Chesapeake Bay is the only place in the entire world where three major rivers flow into a bay in less than 100 miles of, of travel time. Theoretically, Virginia or the Monitor can go up these bays and up these rivers and in these harbors. And on March 8, 1862, the newly christened Virginia was ready to make one hell of a splash. And it was the worst disaster in American military naval history until Pearl Harbor. More than 300 casualties, ship of the line frigates, those are the largest warships, sunk and destroyed. The Virginia essentially faces off with three wooden U.S. ships, the Congress, the Cumberland, and the Minnesota. It goes after the Congress first. First, the Virginia raked the Congress as it went by, and then it came into the Cumberland and rammed it. It had a 1,600-pound ram on the front of the ship. The Cumberland started taking on water and was badly disabled. So the Virginia turned back to the Congress to finish what it started. The wooden ship was simply no match for the ironclad. Seeing what had happened to the Cumberland, Lieutenant Joseph B. Smith, captain of the Congress, ordered his ship grounded in shallow water. After an hour of unequal combat, the badly damaged Congress tries to surrender. The captain of the Virginia, Franklin Buchanan, who was from Maryland originally, Buchanan comes onto the deck to accept the surrender and he gets shot by a sharpshooter on shore. Remember, there were thousands of people on March 8, 1862, who knew this battle was going to happen and they all showed up at the shore just to watch. Including soldiers and the soldiers that were shooting at him were not even active duty soldiers and weren't even ordered to shoot. Buchanan is enraged that he's been shot in the thigh under a flag of truce, and he orders his crew to send the Cumberland to the bottom of the James. Even though the Cumberland was taking on water, her crews continued to fight as best they could, firing any available cannon at the iron behemoth headed their way. 
And they weren't just firing your average cannonballs. They were also using something called hotshot, which was designed to stick to any wooden surface or the mast and catch fire. The shells from the cannons just bounced off, bounced off, just boing, boing. And, and if they shot the hot shot, it would bounce off, slide down that bacon grease and just go into the water and the fuse would just fizzle out. And one of the officers said it was like spitting peas out of a pea shooter, no effect. But the bacon grease, because of the hot shot, catches on fire. So the battle smells like breakfast. <laughs> and one of the officers says to another, as this monster is coming at them, with no way to stop it, coming right at him to ram it. One of the officers says about the smell of the bacon, I wonder if this is what hell smells like. And the other officer says, we're about to find out. <laughs> and down goes the Cumberland. And the Cumberland went down like a rock with most of the sailors killed. The Cumberland's still down there and the ram is still in it. It looks like a shark's tooth on the sonar readings. It's just off Newport News Point. The United States Navy refused to allow anyone to go down and get any artifacts or to raise it up. The city of Newport News has requested to do so, to put a museum down in Newport News, but the Navy won't let them do it because it's a graveyard. As for the Congress, which surrendered, burns until it explodes about midnight and just disintegrates in a fireball as the fire reaches the powder magazine. The Minnesota runs aground between Newport News and Hampton, and she's stuck, and here comes the Virginia. The Minnesota was saved by one thing only. The Merrimack slash Virginia was built to be a seagoing transatlantic vessel. It had a 23-foot draft, meaning it needed at least 25 feet of water to float, and the tide was coming in. Virginia has to go back to Norfolk to rearm for the next day's battle. And as they're firing, the ship is getting lighter and lighter as the cannonballs are, are fired and it starts coming out of the water, <laughs> which makes it vulnerable. Goes back into Norfolk, starts rearming, more pig iron on the deck for the next day's battle. And about 11 p.m., the Monitor arrives from New York. The North finally got its counter ironclad to Hampton Roads. He's ordered to protect the Minnesota at all costs. John Warden is the commander. What the U.S. feared about the Virginia was very simple. It's the Virginia is the first operational ironclad by one day. All she's got to do is sail up the coast and level Washington and New York and Boston and Philadelphia and Baltimore because there's nothing to stop her. The cannonballs, as I mentioned, are like spitting a pee off a wall from a pea shooter. She's impenetrable with all this iron. Washington came up with a plan to take ships and sink them in the Potomac. Secretary of War Edward Stanton said in a meeting with the president and the cabinet, the Virginia might come sail the Potomac and put a cannonball in the White House before we were even done with this meeting. They feared the U.S. coast would cease to exist. The Monitor spends the night guarding the Minnesota. Like I mentioned earlier, the U.S. Navy did not have ample supply of these big warships. Two more are in the bottom of the harbor. A third, the Minnesota, is sure to be defeated by the Virginia if the Monitor fails. There's 4,000 miles of coastline and 189 ports. The U.S. couldn't afford to lose another ship. The next morning, March 9th, 1862, 8 o'clock in the morning, 
that Virginia comes out for the second day's battle. And lo and behold, there's the monitor waiting for it. And they knew it was coming, again, because they're spying all this information going back and forth. Newspapers were being delivered. You could live in Norfolk and get a newspaper from New York and you could read about the monitor being built. You could look at lithographs. You could look at the pictures in the, in the newspaper, what it looked like. No secrets involved here. The monitor is sitting there. The captain actually referred to it as the Erickson battery because it was seen more as a defensive battery. Because Buchanan was injured the day before, during the attempted surrender, Catesby Jones took over as commander of the Virginia. Again, he's got a crew of artillerymen who aren't sailors. So at 8 a.m., March 9th, the two ships engage in the first ironclad battle in history. Now, the significance of the Monitor is that Erickson designed it to replace older warships. It had more than 20 patents in it that had never been built before. Quick side note here, one of those patents was a below-water-level flush toilet, which had never existed before. And that design is still used on submarines today, with a little updating. But other patents were much more important for battle, and not the bowels. Ugh, that was a Colton joke. The rotating turret could rotate to fire. It had two portholes for the cannons. It carried two 11-inch Dahlgrens. Now Dahlgren was, John Dahlgren was the man who was the naval officer who figured out how to stop cannons from blowing themselves up. Because the cannons at that time were just, after a certain number of firings, they just blow and, and the crews were killed. So Dahlgren invented this new gun and the sailors called it the soda pop gun. Because it looked like a soft drink bottle from that time period in history. Because soft drinks in the U.S. go back to the 1820s. So it's a soda pop gun. So it's carrying two of these 11-inch Dahlgrens. The Virginia has nine-inch Dahlgrens. These cannons would change warfare because they had long range and were more accurate and they didn't blow themselves up. So they go into battle and the way the monitor's turret work, it rotates and when it comes around, those two cannons come out and then they fire like this. One goes out, one comes in. They're on tracks. One goes out, one comes in. Now the problem is they had never had a chance to actually test this before because of the Virginia's being operational. Remember, the Monitor was built in just 100 days. The Confederates had a head start with the Virginia, and it was already paying dividends. What the sailors soon discovered is with the turret turning, it's hard to hit your target because you're moving. And it's like, you got, you got to figure out exactly when to fire the cannon because otherwise you're just going to send it into the atmosphere. The Virginia figured out, well, all we got to do to stop this is just put some sharpshooters on the deck, and when that thing comes around, we just fire into the porthole. Problem is, they're fighting at point-blank range. At times, they're only eight feet away from each other, firing away at each other. The cannonball is just bouncing off of each other. So when those guns would come around and swivel around, those sharpshooters would head in indoors as quickly as possible. They never fired a shot <laughs> because those two, th those two 11 inch dog runs are staring them in the face. This heavyweight bout was not decided in the first few rounds. This one would go the distance. For four hours, the Monitor and Virginia are just firing at each other. Thousands of people on the shoreline watching, cheering like it's a football game. All the ships that are in, in the harbor, of course, are watching anxiously because if the Monitor is sunk, they're gonna get sunk immediately afterwards. The Virginia tried to ram the Monitor to try to sink it that way. So they did run into each other. And an interesting part of the story is you can imagine the weight of these ships and this new technology. The Virginia in pure battle trim could only make about four knots. The Monitor could only make about eight knots in full battle trim. 
This is a slow motion battle. We could have outwalked the maneuverings fairly easily. But they're firing sometimes 100 yards away from each other, sometimes 200 yards from each other. They're trying to get position. They're rotating around. They're firing each other. Sometimes they're point blank side by side and firing. Neither side can do any damage to the other. Now, occasionally, a cannonball would hit with such force that it would knock somebody across. Particularly, the monitor turret is only 20 feet in diameter and 9 feet tall. So a couple of their gunners literally got knocked from one side to the other from the, from the impact. Same thing on the Virginia. Because of the, the percussion of these cannonballs coming in, the Virginia artillerymen sort of bleeding from the ears and bleeding from their noses because they had such massive concussions. And about two dozen of those men were hospitalized that night to get over the concussion. Even though the cannonballs weren't doing much damage to the ships themselves, the Monitor's commander, John Warden, is effectively removed from battle. He takes a cannonball right in the face when he's looking through his viewing station on the front of the ship. He gets blinded. Uh, fortunately, he did recover from those wounds and, and regained his eyesight later on in life. So Lieutenant Dana Green takes over. Lieutenant Dana Green has never commanded a warship in battle. He's young. Caseby Jones on the Virginia side has never commanded a warship in battle. He's also young. No experience, no training. Two iron monsters just firing away at each other. Well, everybody on shoreline cheers. A couple of rookies commanding two ships the world has never seen before, both looking for any weakness to exploit, with none found by Cannonball. The Virginia had one weakness that only Mother Nature could affect, the tides. The Confederates are forced back into port. Monitor retakes its position in front of the Minnesota. And that's it the most famous naval battle of the Civil War. Two ironclads going at it, ultimately ending in a stalemate. 32 consecutive days, the Virginia comes out. Fight me, fight me, come on and fight me. Monitor would not re-engage. Virginia would actually capture Union warships, take prisoners, take the warships back into Portsmouth to be part of the Confederacy. Still would not engage. 32 days, coming out in circles, firing, firing at the monitor, taking the other ships, will not re-engage because the monitor was ordered to not leave those side by of those ships. And it's an interesting thing to look at is options. What were the options? Because the Virginia just sailed up the Chesapeake and gone ahead and attacked Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Washington with the monitor chasing it and firing away? Yeah, probably. Because the monitor had just gone into Portsmouth Navy Yard, just leveled it to the ground. Yeah, probably. Because neither side could stop the other or do any damage to the other. All they could do was dent the monitor, and all they could do was dent the Virginia. So you can imagine this point-blank iron warship naval battle going on for four hours and no casualties on either side. And there are notable spectators observing this change in history. The British are there with war warships. The French are there with warships, there to observe this change in history. Reaction to what happened, of course, is obvious. The English and the French reported what happened, and the United States, from this day, March 9, 1862, the United States, England, and France never once commissioned another wooden warship. Never. They made the technological change immediately. Parliament in England suddenly feared the United States. They feared a fleet of monitors coming across the ocean and attacking England. The Prime Minister of England said, we shall find out what kind of man Mr. Lincoln actually is. Both sides built something that worked, 
that couldn't destroy each other. From now on, wooden warships might as well not even exist. They no longer have a purpose. So the Monitor class, they build 60 of these things. The Virginia class, they build 25 ironclads. So they continue fighting each other all during the war on the Gulf Coast, the Atlantic, James River, Mississippi River. The only thing that could sink one is, is a mine. One of the monitors ran into a mine in Mobile Bay and sank in eight minutes with all hands lost. After the famous stalemate, the Confederacy starts losing control of Norfolk yet again. And they find themselves in the same spot the Union was back in 1861. They couldn't let the Virginia go back to being the Merrimack. They blow the Virginia up rather than have it be captured on May 11th of 1862, right next to Craney Island, right there next to the naval base. Old timers in the area said you could still see parts of it until the 1950s. The Monitor went up the James River to participate in the Seven Days Battle, which is when Robert E. Lee made his, his fame. And it was quickly discovered that because of the way the turret fired, you couldn't elevate the guns. Therefore, it was of no use in a land battle if the enemy is elevated. That was a problem the British fixed in a hurry. And of course, by the 1890s, the British have perfected the dreadnoughts and, and history has changed. After the Monitor returned to Hampton Roads, it sat in harbor for months before meeting its demise. Not due to an enemy warship, though its ingenious design turned out to be fatal in the wrong circumstances. They tried to tow it down to Wilmington, North Carolina to take part of the blockade. And on December 31st, 1862, it sinks in a storm and is lost. And the wreck wasn't found in the bottom of the Atlantic for decades. In 1973, a group of Duke researchers were mapping the ocean floor and took pictures of it. It had never been found. The Navy had looked for it for 100 years and never been able to find it. And the reason they were looking for it is because by international law, any ship lost in a war is an official graveyard and you're not allowed to touch it because it's, it's a memorial unto itself because there are sailors aboard. First, they thought they found a German submarine from World War II. And then one of the researchers realized that's the monitor. About 16 miles off Cape Hatteras, 240 feet down, right where the Gulf Stream and the Labrador currents come together. So very, very, very difficult. It's one reason they couldn't find it before. The U.S. government decided that it would be the first warship in history that NOAA would be in charge of to take care of. And then the government picked the Mariners Museum for all the artifacts to go to and be the caretaker. But the only reason that it could actually be brought up is because in 1956, the U.S. Navy got tired of looking for it. <laughs> they decommissioned it. Therefore, it was eligible to be, to be rescued. Both of the first ironclads who fought to a glorious stalemate lost underneath the water on which they floated with dangerous fury. Of the two days of battle in March 1862, the ninth is remembered in history, even though the eighth was seen as a devastating blow to the U.S. Navy and the potential birth of an iron juggernaut for the Confederacy. The ninth is a spectacular visual. If you can imagine these two iron warships as close as eight feet apart from each other, just firing it away and the cannonballs just bouncing off each other. And standing on the shore watching this, and people are actually even making bets on who's going to win and all this kind of stuff, and they're waving flags and they're cheering. And it's a spectacular visual, but it decided nothing and nobody died. He likens it to the image we started with, a famous boxing match. 
The way I like to describe it is, for those in the audience old enough to remember Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, it's Ali and Frazier. It's, it's one of their 15 rounders throwing punches and throwing punches and throwing punches, and neither one can beat the other, and neither one of them can damage the other, because they're both the best at their, in the business. These two ships are now not only the best of the business, the best that each Navy has to offer. These two ships are so best of the business, the rest of the world's warships might as well not even exist anymore. March 9, 1862. Two behemoths of iron collide in the waters of Hampton Roads, Virginia. The Monitor and the Merrimack turned Virginia, battling to a draw that day. No winners and no loss of life. Just two ships flexing their might with the world watching, turning the tides of naval warfare forever. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where digital resources reach nearly 4 million people yearly, and collections of more than 130 million items tell the stories of Virginians. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. This one's for the Gen Xers and older millennials. Remember the fun of walking into a blockbuster in the evening, picking out your movie to watch over the weekend? In your neighborhood, maybe it was a Hollywood video. Or how about that blissful wonder of being told by your parents, we get to go to Toys R Us today. The nostalgia we feel for stores now gone out of business is very real, even more so if it all began in your own backyard. It was this week in history, March 8, 2009. The plug was pulled on Circuit City. Richmond, Virginia's Fortune 500 company had its last day of sales. At the time of its bankruptcy filing, the consumer electronic retail giant had 567 stores and about 34,000 employees nationwide. And it all started with a tiny storefront on Broad Street in Richmond by a man named Sam Wurzel. Sam Wurzel always wore bow ties. As do many Richmonders to this day. Sam's dear friend Abraham Hecht soon joined him on this journey. And Abraham Hecht loved to wear a beret. <laughs> and they were just like little characters and they were nice foils for each other. And so they were good part business partners. Sam Wurzel didn't call it Circuit City at first. That didn't happen until 1984. He dubbed that first store Wards. Which you might wonder why it's called that, but he thought Wurzel was too much of a mouthful for um, Virginians and Richmonders to say. So he took the first letter from his last name and then the first initial of the first name of his family members. W for Wurzel, A for his son Alan, R for his wife, Ruth, D for his son, David, and S for his first name, Sam. And then they said the reason they didn't have an apostrophe, like wards, like a lot of stores are possessive, wards isn't, and it's because he didn't want to be separated from his family by an apostrophe. 
<laughs> so I thought that was kind of sweet. And that voice you've been hearing, that's Laura Stoner, a senior archivist at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, a first time guest of how we got here. I have a really complicated um, background that my dad worked in universities. So I was born in State College, Pennsylvania, and then my family promptly moved to Washington State when I was six months old. So I don't really feel like a Pennsylvanian. And then we went to Maryland, and he worked for the University of Maryland, and then we went to Georgia. And then from Georgia, I went to college here at Randolph-Macon in Ashland, and I just stayed. I'm a Terrapin. Go Terps. Go Terps. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, you know how important the Terps are to me. As I mentioned, Laura is an archivist, meaning she has access to a lot of old documents. Archivists are always trying to define themselves. They feel like they're very misunderstood. So we work with primary materials. Primary material is an original source, so it hasn't been published. It's unique to us. Like, if you go to a library, the Bible is going to be at every library in the United States. Archival materials are usually only in the place where they have been deposited. So we have very unique materials, and we organize them so that people can come to the museum and access them and use them for research purposes. Now that might be like family research, like learning your genealogy, or it could be like an aspect of business, like you want to know about retailing in the 1960s and 70s. Virginia was a big place for things that were innovations in retail. Which brings us to 1949 and Sam Wurzel. And he was from New Jersey, but he married into a wealthy business family. His sister-in-law lived in Richmond. Sam Wurzel was raised by a Russian immigrant mother. She had an arranged marriage and it didn't work out, so she was a single mother of four children. She got them all graduated from high school and they were all successful in their endeavors. But Sam had a business mindset. He loved business. His father was a butter and egg wholesaler, and so he tried to do that after high school, and that kind of didn't work out. Sam was a serial entrepreneur. He took accounting and night courses. He was constantly looking for the next business he could start, the one that would take off. The egg crate business, well, that went south. He tried steel, that went kaput. In 1948 and 9, he's like, what do I do? Like, I need to reevaluate my life, what I want to do in business. He and his wife decide to take a vacation to North Carolina to a golfing vacation to get sorted. His wife can't go with him at the last minute. So he goes to D.C. to a meeting, and then he goes down to Richmond to stay with her sister and wait for her to come down and meet him. She never makes it on the trip. But while in Richmond, he goes and gets his hair cut. And he overhears a barber talking about the opening of WTVR and how, you know, this is a new thing that's happening and everybody's going to be needing TVs. So if you're wondering, WTVR is the CBS affiliate in Richmond that still sits on Broad Street. It's my competitor as I work at the NBC affiliate WWBT. He thought in his head, you know, these people are going to need some TVs. At the point that he is looking at this, there are only 27 TV stations in the nation. It really shows you what a thinker and an innovator Sam was. There just weren't that many stations to broadcast content into people's homes. TVs were around at this time, but they weren't inside the homes in 1949. Radio was still the number one way to get information. Enter his friend Abraham Hecht. You know, the guy with the berets. 
and he has a connection with a person who owns a TV manufacturing company called Olympic Televisions. He goes and talks to them, and he buys like 12 TVs from them, and he says, give me the exclusive rights to sell your TVs in Virginia, and I'll go do it. Abe has the TVs, and Sam has the smarts. They're now in the TV business. So he sells his home, he takes his whole family down to Richmond, and then he opens up a store. It's not a brick and mortar store. Wurzel was literally selling televisions out of the front half of a tire store on Broad Street, a few blocks west of downtown. He's going door to door and he's advertising in the paper for free at-home demonstrations. A unique sales technique at the time. A salesperson would drop the TV off to a potential customer's house for the night, free of charge, and then would offer to come by the next day and pick it back up. Um, you know how that went. Who's giving back a TV at that point? The sale was locked in. Once you start it, you can't give it back. And in comparison to radio, which is what most of these people are used to, it's probably quite revolutionary. He does that for a while and then he decides to start a brick and mortar and he opens up right across the street from the largest Sears that's located on West Broad Street in the Richmond area. He was very proud of the fact that eventually Sears bricks up the entrance that's on his side that faces his building because they don't want consumers going between the two stores and comparing prices. So they try to make it harder for the customers to leave Sears to go to his store to look at his TVs. And Wurzel's vision of the future would be dead on. In 1950, 9% of homes had a TV inside. By 1960, 85% of homes had TVs. There's a massive growth, but also you have to look at the overall like picture of what's going on in our country at this time. It's post-World War II, people are getting the GI Bill, they're building homes, they're having families, they're earning more money than they ever had. It's a great economic boom. And so they need TVs and appliances to fill these homes. So it's, he picked a really good time to start this type of business. They're selling TVs and appliances at this point at Wards. But Wurzel and Abraham Hecht want to get bigger. They open up a store in North Carolina and it fails within a year. A manager at one of the stores, he was in amateur pilot so like one of the guys went down to check on the store and the store was closed because he was out like flying his plane. They just didn't feel like they had control but one of the things they thought about to gain more control of their stores is they adopted computers. So in 1955 they had an IBM punch card system so they were very early adopters of inventory control and knowing where their products are and what they need and how to order which is a big part of being profitable. If you have too much of something that doesn't sell, then you don't want to order more of it. And they try to expand again, but this time they realize no overhead costs. So they start putting their stores in regional malls. And so then that ushers in kind of a new generation of store. They also partnered with discount stores. They found a way to expand in that they would license areas in these discount stores to sell the TV and appliances. It wasn't a Ward's TV per se, but within another store. And then you didn't have to have infrastructure and you didn't have to like do the whole advertising thing yourself. Brilliant way to expand and get your brand out there. 
Because there are tons of people doing the same thing. I don't think they're succeeding on the level that Ward slash Circuit City would eventually do it. In 1960, Ward's goes public and it starts acquiring local TV chains. But they have trouble kind of integrating them all together into a system, so it's never a boon for them financially. That is until 1966, when Sam Wurzel's son, Alan, joins the company as the VP of Legal Affairs, bringing with him a whole new approach. I think he's way more into hi-fi. In the 70s, people were really into it. They wanted their speakers, they wanted, you know, receivers. They start acquiring specialty hi-fi stores. Sales for wards in 1966 are $23 million. Two years later, the company joins the American Stock Exchange. Which is not the New York Stock Exchange, but a different stock exchange. And they're traded and they get more money. And with the money pouring in, the Wurzels decide it is time for a new name and a new retail model, inspired by those early discount stores. In the early 80s, they open the Circuit City Superstore, the brand we all remember today, featuring large showrooms attached directly to an even larger warehouse. And most significantly, there was not a checkout area. There were commissioned salespeople stationed at multiple terminals helping customers make those purchases. Those salespeople were essential to Circuit City's business model. You have to remember, VCRs, you know, those technological fossils, were new. People didn't know how to work them. They were expensive, too. Folks wanted salespeople at the time to teach them how these things worked. In 1982, they hire Rick Sharp, and he has a computer background. He's hired as an executive VP. Alan Wurzel, who's been with them, you know, he started in 66. In the 80s, he's like, I want to get out. He actually kind of wanted to devote his life to other things. So he's looking to leave. He doesn't want to just say, I'm done, I'm quitting, I'm closing the door. He wants to put a team in place that can carry on after he leaves. So he's grooming Rick Sharp to take over. Sales are good, and per usual, Circuit City is in the right market at the right time. Circuit City goes through a cycle of like, okay, everybody needs, TVs are new. Everybody wants a TV. Then color TVs come in. You know, they have to go back and buy a new product and it's expensive. As they become more common and the technology becomes easier to produce, prices go down. So it kind of affects their sales patterns. In the 70s and 80s, you've got microwaves, you've got cordless phones, you've got cell phones, you've got VCRs, and they're all very expensive when they start out and they become more accessible as it goes on. So they always need to have something coming through the pipeline that drives people to buy their products that they are offering in the store. I don't know about you, but I loved my giant Zach Morris cordless phone, Saved by the Bell. It was see-through. You know, you could see the parts inside the phone. I know some of you out there know exactly what I'm talking about. I have a feeling it's still in my attic. It's got to be worth something, right? In 1985, Sam Wurzel and his friend Abraham Hecht die. After losing his father, Alan is ready to retire. So Rick Sharp takes over, and during his tenure, sales at Circuit City take off, increasing from $1 billion to $12.6 billion. 
and he did a lot of innovative things. And I think he didn't think the same way that like a person with a business background thought. He was very into operations and efficiencies and computer systems. And they even said that he was kind of ahead of his time. He wasn't into personal computers because he knew about cloud computing before we all did, but he didn't realize that like personal computers were going to last as long as they did. They didn't really jump on that bandwagon in terms of offering it to consumers in their stores. And then Best Buy comes along. This is the thing I find incredibly ironic. Best Buy is offered for sale to Circuit City for $30 million. But Rick Sharp doesn't want to do it because he figures I can just go to their markets and open up a store. It's way cheaper. It makes us more money than just buying it. Because I think Best Buy was kind of on its own roller coaster of earnings and deficits. And at that point, it was not doing as well. So he probably could have taken out his main competitor wasn't in the cards. If they had only known, right? Best Buy is still around today. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. In 1990, Circuit City did two billion in sales and the company continued to grow. And the company starts to own its own credit card business. So they started the first North American bank and they offered credit card products. It was very, very lucrative. Alan Wurzel, who wrote this book that's called Good to Great to Gone about Circuit City and its demise, said that Rick Sharp didn't want other companies to know that it was so lucrative, so he just put it on his balance sheet as profits. So it kind of masked some of the financial difficulties that they were having because he had a lot of cash flow. I think maybe they would have been forced to address certain things if it did, the picture hadn't looked so good. And then comes CarMax. Bet you didn't know Circuit City once owned it. Rick Sharp created it right here in Central Virginia. It officially split from Circuit City in 2002. CarMax, by the way, sold more than 750,000 vehicles in 2021. Still kicking. I mean, that's an innovative thing that came out of Circuit City and Rick Sharp's leadership. It's now 1994. Circuit City has 300 stores nationwide. And Best Buy starts really knocking on their door and providing discomfort for them and their business model. And a price war in the markets that they share starts heating up. There were a few key differences between Best Buy and Circuit City at the time. Mostly, people didn't want help anymore inside of the stores. Circuit City prided itself on high service. If you had a problem with the product that you bought, then they wanted to make it right for you. They had salesmen that were very well trained. They made commission on the sales. And they had these buildings that were built to enhance and create displays of products that would be interesting to consumers. Best Buy was more like a warehouse and it was help yourself. There was no commissions on sales for sales people and it was a low-pressure kind of situation. They were very different experiences for their consumers. To compensate, Circuit City keeps buying up more real estate, planning for more stores. So in 1998, the company starts a thing called Divix, and it's a proprietary movie rental service. And to compete with Blockbuster. <laughs> to compete with Blockbuster, and I guess you would say it's more in line with Netflix. Before we had the high-speed internet, like you dialed in on a phone line and 
you used like a proprietary machine, but nobody wanted to sell this machine. Like Blockbuster didn't want to sell the machine because it would put them out of business. They open it and they try it and then they close it the next year. Now with Carmax, they had success, but with Devix, I don't even remember hearing about that as a child. Do you? The next part will blow your mind. In 1999, Circuit City creates its first website. Doesn't it feel like Google's been around our whole life at this point? In 1999, the internet was just a thing that may or may not take off. We have slides of pictures of their website, which I find hilarious that like someone's taking pictures of an internet screen and putting them on a slide so that they can show people in a presentation. Like, this is our e-commerce website. Like, it's just... <laughs> it's so opposite of today. Yeah. <laughs> and also that you have this as part of history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it documents the time when like, oh, you had to explain what a website is <laughs> and that you could shop there. <laughs> At the end of the 90s, Circuit City has 12 billion in sales and stores in 45 states. The 2000s weren't kind to, to Circuit City. Alan McCullough, he succeeds Sharp as CEO. He removes appliances from Circuit City's product line. In 2002, he becomes chairman of the board and he spins off CarMax. We're starting to see the cracks in Circuit City. In 2003, the chain officially ends commission sales and the secession of leaders at the helm goes hard and fast. The recession hits them hard. In 2007, the company lays off 3,400 of the most experienced salespeople, which also make the most money to mitigate their financial hardships. In 2008, they file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and then in 2009, they can't find another buyer. You know, they really tried hard to find someone who could take it over, and it they don't meet the deadline, so they are ordered to liquidate. The end of an era for this once giant Richmond company, a moment in retail history to mark. The demise of Circuit City is like looking back into a window of the products we once loved. I mean, think about camcorders in the 1980s. I pulled a picture out of the collection and there's a lady with this big thing sitting on her like shoulder. And now we have all that capability in our phones. We're recording this podcast on a phone right now. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, to think that there, there's like, it's your phone, it's your, you know, TV, it's your camcorder, it's all in one thing. Like, what would Circuit City do now? I think it teaches us about how our economy works. I don't think most people think about how they pay for something and what price is set and how that affects our daily lives that the salesmen were so very important to their business model and then they just had to abandon it. And I don't know that it necessarily served them well, but sometimes looking at the bottom line, you have to make hard decisions. We still have CarMax. <laughs> March 8th. 2009, Circuit City's last store turns off the lights and locks the door. A giant at the turn of the century for innovation. The place Grandma got her first TV and Mom and Dad their first VCR. Circuit City had 17,000 creditors and 1.2 billion in debt when its liquidation began. The rise and fall of technology, a sort of cautionary tale the easier we make life for ourselves, the harder it is to let go of bittersweet memories 
of simpler times. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written and edited by me, Rachel DePampa, with extensive help from digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly. Two years later, this team is still going. And a special thank you to our guest this week, Ed Moore with the Mariners Museum in Newport News Speakers Bureau. By the way, he got that creaky chair fixed from last season. Thanks, Ed. And Laura Stoner, a senior archivist at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Next week on episode two, the birth of the father of the Constitution. He pushed back on that when someone called him that. He said that, no, it had been the work of many heads and many hands. But we certainly see his as one of the guiding hands. James Madison guides some of the most important decisions still in place today, though not everything in early America was adequately addressed. It's certainly a failing in the founding generation. We would like to say that the founding fathers got all of it right, but they didn't. Plus... Everybody who meets him remembers him. The larger-than-life man who filled our screens in Hamilton comes to life in our podcast. The Marquis de Lafayette starts his Virginia campaign. And when Lafayette arrives, he is treated as a hero. He arrives in the port of Boston, they fire cannons, the whole crowd comes up, rings bells. That's next week on episode two. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. Look us up on Instagram, howwegothereva. We'll be back in your life next Monday.